Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the new Arab Voice. It's Friday the 6th of August and I'm your host, Hugo Goodridge, coming to you from London. This week we explore human trafficking in the Middle East and speak to those identifying the victims and fighting for justice and change. I can say that gender played a huge role in their trafficking and then their, the, the future exploitation to which they were subjected Women were targeted on the basis of of particular vulnerabilities. Some of the girls and young women who were trafficked were lured on dating sites. And then we speak with the new Arab Voices film critic, Najas Satat, about Limbo, a new film about asylum seekers on a Scottish island. Is they a tourist, Margaret? You're one of their refugees. You speak English, pal? We haven't got a lot. But first, the voice of Tunisian President Kais Sayed. On July 25th, he announced that he was suspending parliament, sacking the prime minister and lifting parliamentary immunity. The move threw the country into chaos, sparking instant confusion, wild speculation and much trepidation. The decision was welcomed by some Tunisians who are frustrated with the minor improvements in living standards since the Arab Spring and have grown infuriated by protracted political deadlock, in addition to the chronic mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic. Other Tunisians took a less welcoming stance, decrying the move as an attempted coup. Protests and counter-protests have been witnessed in the capital, Tunis. Responding to the accusations, the president has attempted to market his decision as an attempt to crack down on corruption, accusing 460 businessmen of owing almost $5 billion to the state. Although news that MPs and others who are critical of the president have been arrested have added fuel to the cries of coup. Numerous foreign nations have expressed concern about the ongoing events, including the U.S. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Sure. Well, first, we're concerned about the developments in Tunisia, which come as the Tunisian authorities are seeking to stabilize their economy, confront a resurgence in the COVID-19 pandemic, and improve living standards for all Tunisians. We are in touch at a senior level from both the White House and the State Department with Tunisian leaders to learn more about the situation, urge calm, and support Tunisian efforts to move forward in line with democratic principles. Uh, as you know, While Tunisia has been gripped by protests and political chaos in Lebanon, the country has been holding commemorations and protests one year after the devastating explosion that rocked the capital city, Beirut. The new Arabs correspondent in Lebanon, Will Christou, was at one of the protests. It's been a tense day, starting with marches and uh, speeches from the victims' families, turning into a march on Parliament, which turned violent quite quickly. Protesters stormed Parliament, outnumbering police maybe 10 to 1, and tear gas was quickly fired with... um, you can hear prote- you can hear tear gas being fired right now uh, with um, 
Lebanese internal security forces shooting pellets at protesters. Right now, the uh, the police have pushed them out of parliament and into Martyr Square, where there is a multi-pronged assault on the uh, protesters, with police coming from all directions. Head over to the New Arabs website, and you can read Will's in-depth analysis about the quest for justice and the victims' families who are leading the charge. July 30th marked World Day Against Trafficking in Persons. It's a global problem to which the Middle East and North Africa is not immune. Thousands of men, women and children are trafficked every year into and from the Middle East for forced labour, sexual exploitation or other forms of abuse. Much of this trafficking and abuse can either go undetected, unreported or stuck in a legal grey zone where the local laws allow for it. But the basics first. What is human trafficking? Generally, what we mean is a family of different types of exploitation which involve movement. This is Luke de Pulford, human rights campaigner and director of Arise, an anti-slavery and human trafficking organisation working across the globe. The UN has a definition in the Palermo Protocol, which is a 2003 legal document, which does set out what trafficking is. And it says, OK, you move from one place to another for the purposes of exploitation. That exploitation might be for sexual exploitation, it might be for organ trafficking or for labour. So those are the general categories there. But it's quite narrowly defined. According to UN data, the majority of the victims trafficked to the Middle East are from East Asia and North and East Africa. And in countries where economies are weaker, you'll find that people will do anything in order to sustain their family, even moving abroad to work in a situation which they know is high risk. And many of them do that. So I know people, for example, from the Philippines who had been to seminars about human trafficking and the risks associated with migrating for work to the Middle East, but they'd gone anyway. Why? Because they were desperate. The recruitment agencies who tempt victims to the Middle East have an alluring sales patter. Greener grass, roads paved with gold, enough money to send back to relatives at home to pay for an education for children. For many, it can be an offer too good to pass up. In reality, they find themselves transported often to a country that they were not expecting even to go to. They find themselves trapped sometimes in a kafala system over which they have no control their passports and other documents confiscated, often trapped in very serious debt bondage before they've earned anything, which takes them years to pay off before they earn a penny to send home to their families. For years, the terms human trafficking and modern-day slavery have been linked to the kafala system. The kafala system is a system of sponsorship. A worker is offered employment with a company or individual who then becomes the employee's sponsor. They become tied to the employer, who then, to all intents and purposes, has ownership over the individual. So that employer has the rights in some countries to the passports and and other identity documents of the person who they're employing. That obviously lends itself to huge abuse because that person can't move. Um, So it relies upon the employer being willing to treat the employee well for the system to work. And it hasn't been working. In, in a lot of circumstances, which is why I think there's been this movement towards reform, which is a great thing. 
but there's a long way to go. When it comes to securing the release of trafficking victims and bringing prosecutions against those who have committed abuses, the odds are stacked against the affected individual. Uh, what is very, very difficult in most jurisdictions, and it's in some ways particularly difficult in the Middle East, because the laws won't necessarily be in place in order to enable them to seek redress. And even if they could, uh, they are foreign nationals and the, their status is often often has an impact on their ability to seek justice. Quite apart from the fact that it costs money, there might be a language barrier, all the kinds of access problems that you normally face uh, when, when victims of exploitation are, are trying to seek justice. While the prospect of ending human trafficking remains a monumental task, the chance, however small, for justice and redress is a lifeline to those who have suffered. In Israel, that cause of justice has been picked up by the hotline for refugees and migrants. And our work focuses on giving legal and paralegal aid in issues of status, detention, asylum system. And also we identify and assist victims of human trafficking and uh, slavery-like conditions. This is Shira Abo, spokesperson and head of public policy for the hotline for migrants and refugees. So in these in these issues, we help also people who are asylum seekers, but also people who are migrants, work migrants. The Hotline for Migrants and Refugees holds a unique position in Israel, being the only human rights organisation that has permanent access to people being detained by the authorities. They also work with the police to help identify victims of trafficking who are being held in slavery-like conditions and secure their release. According to Shira, in the past, this was focused on fighting trafficking victims who were held in sexual slavery. But today, the task covers a much broader field. Today, we see new phenomenons that are harder to explain and are more sophisticated. It's important to, to say that the majority of situations of, of people who are held in slavery-like conditions and what we call trafficking, is actually something that happens because of the war conditions, the legal war conditions of, of migrant workers in Israel. The patterns and, and conditions that are legal and set by the state create so, some sort of a slippery slope that can be deteriorated to, to slavery-like conditions, whether it's binding uh, of workers to a specific employer or to a specific zone, uh, area in the country. This is one of the first problems when it comes to human trafficking in Israel. Employment laws that can be easily twisted and abused. But once a victim of trafficking and slavery-like conditions has been identified by the hotline, they can then work with the police to seek justice and redress. Or at least that's the idea. In the Israeli police, the, the entire department whose job is to identify victims of human trafficking is composed of two officers. Only one of them is a lawyer. Their job is to identify every human trafficking uh, victim in Israel. Because of this very poor reality, there are almost no investigations. We don't see prosecution. We don't see verdicts and people actually facing charges for crimes of human trafficking and holding people in slavery-like conditions. The state itself doesn't really identify trafficking victims. This lack of staffing and the failure to bring successful prosecutions has not gone unnoticed.
In their recent Trafficking in Persons report for 2021, the US State Department downgraded Israel from a Tier 1 country to a Tier 2 country, the first time Israel has been downgraded in a decade. In its report, the US State Department said, For the fifth consecutive year, the Police Anti-Trafficking Coordinating Unit, which remained the only authority to officially recognise victims of trafficking, remained severely understaffed, which further impacted the efficiency of victim identification procedures and referral of victims to protection services. Therefore, Israel was downgraded to Tier 2. The report also noted that when Israel did act on information, it did more harm than good. The government's victim identification policies sometimes re-traumatise trafficking victims and delayed access to necessary care, at times for years. This re-traumatising of victims was an issue that the hotline raised with government ministers. For example, we had a case of, of two minors who were trafficked to Israel. And one day uh, we get a phone call in the morning that uh, one of them was taken from the place that she was uh, staying. Uh, that she was taken early, early morning in her pyjamas to an investigation in the police. And she was told that if she wouldn't say who was the bad guy who trafficked her to Israel, she wouldn't get any any recognition, any status or anything. Such heavy-handed policing of minors not only terrified this young girl, but also led to a complete breakdown in the investigation and none of the girl's traffickers were apprehended. Following this incident and calls by the hotline, changes were made. And as for the damning State Department report... The State Department's report reflects the the situation on the ground. It's true to to the reality. And we weren't surprised by anything that's written there. And I personally, I don't think that the state was surprised because, you know, we don't keep secrets from the state. It's not like we go and, and tell the State Department something we didn't say to the state. There was nothing there should have surprised the state if they were paying attention. I am happy that it reflects the situation in the ground and I I look forward for Israel to take this wake-up call and and get its act together. Israel appears to have taken notice of the State Department's report on human trafficking and there is hope among civil society that change could be effected. But sadly, when it comes to dealing with victims of human trafficking... Not all governments are so concerned. When the Islamic State swept across Syria and Iraq in a bloody rampage, they captured thousands, holding many in sexual and domestic slavery. This abuse, however, wasn't limited to the people that they captured, but also included those that they lured to their territory from foreign countries. We didn't start from the perspective of trying to identify victims of trafficking. It was a theme that emerged through the investigation into the cases. This is Maya Foa, the Joint Executive Director of the legal charity Reprieve, who recently produced a report on the British families detained in Syria after being trafficked to the Islamic State trafficking victims, trafficking definition is that there is an act, a means and a purpose. And so in this instance, the act 
was the recruitment or the transportation of large numbers of people through use of a means which could be abuse of power, deceit, coercion, force for a purpose. And in the case of Islamic State, what what emerged from our discussions was that the purpose was sexual exploitation, forced labor, domestic servitude. These are all typical elements of trafficking, which patterns were found in the majority of the cases that we started to explore. The British women and children currently being held in Syria are in complete legal limbo. They're stuck between the ruling regional power, the Kurdish Autonomous Administration, who have neither the capability nor the legal authority to try them, and the British government, who have completely rejected them as citizens. Investigations by Reprieve have revealed that of the British women being detained in northeastern Syria, at least 63% have been recognised as victims of trafficking. And as Maya describes it, the women who travelled to Syria didn't go on a whim, but rather they were taken in by a sophisticated grooming system, which targeted them in part because of their gender. I can say that gender played a huge role in their trafficking and then the the future exploitation to which they were subjected. Women were targeted on the basis of of particular vulnerabilities. Some of the girls and young women who were trafficked were lured on dating sites and there were notorious trafficking gangs that chose those platforms to target and prey on and groom individuals and take them over there. And then once they arrived in ISIS territory, the stories that I have been told by scores of women was stories of being imprisoned, enslaved, not allowed to leave unless they agreed to marriage, which was, of course, forced marriage. And then the sexual exploitation and and abuse began in many, many instances. So it is quite clear that that gender dynamic was at play from the very start of the trafficking nexus here and it was part of the strategy that ISIS deployed. And it's this gender dimension that is being so disastrously overlooked by the British government. I think it's very obvious that they are not applying a gender lens and indeed they themselves have said in communications with reprieve and public communications that they do not think gender or age should be viewed as relevant considerations when thinking through national security risks. Now that is an astounding thing to say when we know the importance of age and gender when you look at risk but also when you look at justice and when you look at processes and the specific vulnerabilities of individuals, the way in which they might have been exploited. Watching footage of the horrific crimes committed across the region by the Islamic State, it can be easy to write off these women as being members of a brutal terrorist organisation. But when dealing with a sophisticated trafficking operation, such broad assumptions can be false. I have clients who were pregnant or very young first-time mothers who had were in abusive relationships where their partners left them and then threatened to kidnap their children or threatened them with other forms of abuse and in those coercive relationships they said if you don't come and join me in say Turkey or another country along the way I will 
and then they threaten to kidnap their children. They threaten to exercise other forms of violence upon these women, who, as I say, were in abusive relationships. Forced to travel, bundled from one car to another, fated to be stripped of all rights, imprisoned, subject to sexual slavery and domestic servitude. This was the reality for some of the women who now find themselves imprisoned in northeastern Syria. But others did choose to travel to Syria, perhaps after being groomed, and allegations have emerged that some engaged in criminal acts related to the Islamic State, which has prompted some to call for them to return and face charges in UK courts, calls which even some of the women in Syria support. They would themselves say, I want to come back and be part of a process. Our view would be in international law and indeed The UK's own domestic law says that in instances of trafficking, there needs to be a proper investigation into the circumstances of the trafficking and any acts that arose out of that trafficking. The duty on the UK government is really clear and not in conflict. Whether these are individuals who may have committed crimes or individuals who are victims of crimes, the only way in which we're going to be able to start to sift through this situation and understand what obligations we have either then to prosecute or to protect is to bring them back and go through a proper investigation. Reprieve is clear that by doing nothing, the British government is failing these victims of trafficking. Although why it has taken such an intransigent position is unclear. Because I can't see any legitimate rationale for the approach the British government is taking right now. From a human rights perspective, it's deeply flawed. From a humanitarian perspective, it's deeply flawed. And from a national security perspective, it's not making anyone safer. So I am hoping that ultimately they will take a more pragmatic and more just and and actually safer approach to this situation and and, uh, go back on what their stated policy is. But I can't explain it and I can't justify it. There are signs that the tide could be changing. In April this year, the all-party parliamentary group on trafficked Britons in Syria began hearings. Among the objectives of the hearing are to ensure the UK government fulfills its obligation to identify British nationals trafficked by ISIS, secure the repatriation of trafficked Britons so their cases can be addressed in the UK, prevent trafficking victims in northeastern Syria from being subject to torture and the death penalty, and investigate ISIS trafficking operations to prevent future trafficking. By terror groups. I think the fact that this uh, all-party parliamentary group has been established is uh, such a positive sign. I mean, you have cross-party group of peers and MPs who are standing up now for British values and saying, we are now going to hold an independent inquiry. And we've learned a lot of lessons just from the first inquiry session. And I'm very hopeful that through the second and third inquiry stages, and the report that they will publish at the end of the process, that we will learn a lot about what happened and we will also see their recommendations to the British government as to what needs to be done now to assist the relatively small number of British families who are currently detained in North East Syria. Victims of human trafficking, particularly those travelling to western states, 
are frequently seeking to claim asylum in another country. And those asylum seekers were the subject of the new film Limbo. Joining us to discuss Limbo is the New Arab Voices resident film critic, Najas Zatat. Hi, Najas. How are you? Hi, uh, I'm well, thanks. And how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Limbo, it's out now. What's it all about? Limbo is a study in contrasts, where laughter walks hand in hand with tragedy and a bleak Scottish island becomes home to a ragtag group of men trying to make a home. Syrian refugee Omar, who is played by the deeply talented Egyptian actor Amir al-Masri, is waiting to receive his asylum status on a remote Scottish island where the locals are both hostile and curious towards him and the rest of the island's refugees. At times evocative of war, at others a gentle coaxing of cultures, Limbo is a warm and somewhat sad look into the lives of people who have left their homes – as well as the convoluted asylum policy in the UK, which utterly destroys the concept of time uh, for refugees waiting to be let in. It's it's a great film and one that I think everybody needs to watch to get a, an understated understanding of the other side of the refugee crisis. You talked about the, the contrast in the film. There are plenty of very good jokes and comedic moments within this film mixed with the seriousness there's also the almost desolate coldness, incredibly beautiful, but coldness of the Scottish Highlands mixed with the passionate side of the instrument, the oud. And then there's also the silence of Omar as a character compared to uh, the other other characters in the film he's playing off. Why do you think that was the case? I think that this is really great directing and cinematography on the part of Ben uh, Chirac. It's exquisite. Omar is this quiet, mousy thing, but there are storms around him. The sea is always choppy when he stands to watch the waves. It's a glorious bit of pathetic fallacy, actually, and it's a really effective way of humanising Omar and kind of bringing to light that turmoil beneath the surface um, that he's feeling. And I think that this image tries to dismantle an image that's often peddled in tabloid newspapers, sort of that idea of a faceless hordes of refugees coming to take over our countries. Um, And it really seeks to take that apart and show refugees to be individual people in a way that is sometimes funny, like the training scenes where they're learning how to, you know, where they're learning about consent, for example, um, but also in the kind of really serious scenes where where he kind of discovers, for example, that one of the refugees has died. Omar was the central character, but details about his life were sparse. Um, do you think this lack of information about him worked? Um, yes, I do. I think while we don't know the superficials of Omar's life, we, we do know many of the fundamentals. You know, he's a famous Oud player like his granddad. Uh, his mum and dad are in Turkey. Um, and his older brother, who's a beautiful singer, stayed in Syria to fight. What is kept from us, um, perhaps deliberately, which I found interesting, is whether his brother fought for the regime or for the resistance, although I am inclined to say it was the latter, based on sort of information we're drip-fed about victories, um, comments made about being, you know, being safe to go home, 
And I think that the director did a great job of slowly unveiling details about Omar's life in a way that endears the viewer to him. You know, the one constant constant is the oud that he carries with him. And it's his identity. It's his past. And sometimes it's a burden, a reminder of his trauma. And at other times, it's a balm and a sort of a familiarity and comfort. So there's also this tension between where Omar comes from and where where he is going. And that sort of that line, that that line is constantly taught um, and it's pulled in the in throughout the movie in a way that makes the sparsity of details work yeah i mean it, it seemed the film was uh deliberately avoiding the politics of the syrian conflict and at no point did that bother me at all i, I didn't feel that it uh detracted from the story of omar no absolutely not and i think i think i think also um it wasn't specifically about the the syrian conflict it, i think the the focus here was the refugee experience the the experience of being you know afloat in in a in a country not your own and and how those you know how you interact with the people that live there and i think it was much more about that kind of lived reality the residents of the scottish island were shown as should we say unsure mm. about their refugee neighbors do you think that they were shown uh, badly and and what comments if any did, did you think the film made about the uk asylum process they weren't shown i mean there were some that weren't shown that well and there were others who are a little bit more maybe um depicted a bit more positively i think there was a good balance between ignorance and curiosity and, and that reflects um i think what lots of people in small towns uh, experience who who you know, it's a homogenous town and they're suddenly met with, you know, a refugee from from a another, you know, different country. So I, th- I think this is what we were talking about before with the contrasts again. You know, there were those awful culture classes um, run by several Scottish people, um, you know, acting out scenarios in which they apply to jobs as cleaners. Though these scenes are funny in their ridiculousness, you know, like the quote um, that they used, I used to ride my elephant to school. Um, they show kind of a cognitive dissonance when it comes to refugees. And I think that's what the director was getting at. And there was a really clever scene um, in which one of the men laid out the different expiration dates for refugees, dependent on what country is sort of sexy or in fashion for the asylum process. And he said, um, it's a quote, they roll out the red carpet for Syrians, don't they? And I found that really interesting because, you know, there have been countries that are openly welcoming um, of Syrian refugees, perhaps over other types of refugees like Germany. But what does that actually mean? And I think, you know, the comment that the movie makes about this is this this hierarchy of humanity. What is it based on? You know, it's certainly not meritocratic. So so what then? Who decides the value of a human being? Mm. Limbo is in cinemas now and is on video on demand from September 23rd. Thank you for joining us, Nargis. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by myself, with additional help from Nick McAlpin, Rosie McCabe, Will Christou, Naja Satat and Kamal Afzali. Our theme music was by Omar El-Phil.
The new Arab Voice is taking its summer holidays, so our next episode will be in three weeks' time on August 27th. In the meantime, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. Don't forget to follow the new Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.